Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 3, please. Matthew chapter 3. The coming of the Lord to us in meekness and humility means that He came to save us. We talked about this last week. This is why He chose such gracious and simple means to arrive. When you come to conquer, you don't come as a baby in a manger from the womb of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. But since Jesus came to forgive sinners and bridge the gap that we had caused by our sin with His own life, death, and resurrection, that's exactly how Jesus came. This morning I'd like us to focus, though, on another aspect of His coming, which of course is His earthly ministry. God sent a prophet, the last and greatest of all the prophets of the Old Testament era, to proclaim the word of the Lord in Israel. Keep in mind, until John the Baptist comes, God had not spoken to Israel through one of His prophets for over 400 years. But when it was time for Jesus to go public and begin His gospel ministry on the earth, God sent John the Baptist ahead of him to prepare the way. How might we prepare for the coming of the Lord? How are we made ready? How are we made ready to receive Him? God prepares us to receive Christ through the proclamation of the good news that both kills and makes us alive. Let me pray and we'll look at this passage together. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Holy Word, its perfection and inerrancy and infallibility. God, speak to us by Your Spirit through Your Word this morning. Father, enable me to preach under His power for the sake of all those that are here, that all might hear and receive Jesus the Christ. We ask and pray these things in the name of Him, our Lord. Amen. We read, starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now that doesn't sound like good news, does it? The coming one is going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. He says, you brood of vipers to the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders in Israel. And when you think about it, this is often how we wish we could speak to unbelievers, isn't it? Or maybe to you know, especially stubborn Christians, you brood of vipers. 
You don't take it seriously enough. You, you better stop living like that and get right with God or you're done for. That's what it means to preach boldly, apparently, to tell people they're going to hell. Now, it certainly isn't the case that we don't need all of us to repent of our sins. We most certainly do. But what is repentance, biblically? What does this mean? Notice the difference this morning as we look through this. Try to make note of the difference between the way the law is operating in this passage and the way the gospel is operating in this passage, which is a particularly important thing to do when you're listening to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the hinge of these two eras, so to speak, law and gospel. It's not that neither one is present in the other, but this is a distinct moment in time. How is the law, the command of God, how is it functioning here? And how is the gospel, the grace of God, how is it functioning here? Look at verse 2 again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is that law or gospel? Is repentance a matter of the law? What Repent is what you and I must do in order to be forgiven. It's, it's different from faith, which just grabs hold of the promise in that type of thinking. It, it has to be something different. The problem is that if we think of repentance simply as what we must do on our own, when we hear it, it will always have baggage attached to it, right? Um, how do I how do I repent? First of all, how have I done enough to prove that I'm really sorry for my sin? Am I repentant enough? Right? And we'll look at a text like this and say, well, you know, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So there's something I have to do to prove that I've repented, to prove that I'm sorry, or or to make enough of a case to say that I've repented. Normally, we take repent. I think most of us as a word of law. The actual meaning of the word itself, which is important, questions that a little bit. We just hear it. We don't think about it. The first way we interpret it, like I said, is usually in order to get forgiveness, you must repent. That is, you must do penance of some kind. And believe it or not, I know that's a Catholic word, but it is very common in Protestant circles even to think of repentance in that way. You're not actually repentant until you've done something like never do it again to prove that you are really sorry. Although we don't use the word penance. But in our thinking, you do have to prove that you're actually repentant about something. And so um, we normally think, you know, if, if you if you don't change, you haven't really repented. You're not really sorry. The, the, the world talks like this. And of course, there's things like murder or assault and things that, that require very serious, legitimate consequences. And if you're really sorry, there's going to be some kind of response. But for the most part, for sins against one another, sins against God, which are the only kind of sins ultimately that there are, this is how we think. If you're sorry, prove it. If you were sorry, you wouldn't have done it again. And on and on it goes. We make it very hard to for somebody to repent or for somebody to be sorry. And of course, the worse what they've done is, the harder that's going to be. We totally accept that. But during the Reformation, right, the Catholic Church uh, created penances. That was how the Catholic Church granted repentance to people. And at the time, that's basically, even though it wasn't the Roman Catholic Church as we understand it today, 
the Catholic Church was the church. And so if you wanted to repent of your sins and be forgiven of your sins, there were penances, particular penances according to the sin you had committed for each congregation or for the congregations. If you want to be forgiven for that, you have to do this or you have to say this, right? So penance was a specific way of understanding how to repent of sin or how to make a particular uh, payment for a particular matter of sin. It was a process you had to go through usually with the priests. But I would propose that's not what John the Baptist or Jesus is referring to what you and I must do when they say repent. The Greek word translated as repentance is or repent is metanoia. That word means a change or to transform. So that's the issue then, right? If, if we're being told by Jesus, if what he's saying is change yourself or transform yourself, we have to do that in order to receive forgiveness. So we need to ask, okay, what do I change from? What do I stop doing? What do I start doing? What do I change? I change from this into what? Tell me. When we hear the word change, we automatically think the onus is on us. Okay, he wouldn't tell me to change if I couldn't do it. He wouldn't tell me to transform if I, if I couldn't. Our ability to change is hiding in the word itself. The minute it's said, it's on you and me. If, if Jesus says change, again, then I must be able to change. We hear all the time from everyone that we need to change you've probably been told a number of times this week by your parents by your spouses that you need to change something about yourself right and often the the, the preacher does that you need to change this you need to change that if all different walks of life like if, if you're addicted to something what, what to get free of that you have to make a change Motivational speakers talk like that all the time. That you have to decide for yourself and make a change. I love the way people that are ripped and in shape and don't overeat talk about how easy it is to do that if you just set your mind to it. Like, you, no, no. We would all look like that if it was easy. It's not easy. You just got to decide to get up every day at 4 a.m. I'm, that's not happening. Like, I can't, I can't decide that. I'm, I'm sure if I was in the army, they could make me get up at 4 a.m. every day. Or something like that, but but we're we're just basically inundated with this idea. Whether again, whether it's spouses, parents, friends, media, all these things change, change, change. Stop this, start that. And so when John the Baptist comes along and Jesus comes along saying, "Repent," we're hearing, "Do something," right? Change, and then we spend our whole Christian lives doubting our assurance, our, our fruitfulness, because we keep asking ourselves whether or not we're really sorry, whether or not we're really saved, and as though we know what that looks like. Is that what John the Baptist is saying? You, you, you have to kick these habits and start doing something else. You need to start living well instead of sinning in order to be properly prepared for His kingdom, for His coming. And without meaning it, often that's how we preach repentance. That, that you need to change what you're doing and start doing something else. And so we get it, again, buried in our minds that repentance is what I do to earn forgiveness, although we would never say that's what we believe, because we know when we say that, that it's wrong. The meaning of that word, metanoia, is more obvious in the way it's used elsewhere in Scripture because it's presented to us in phrases often. 
One of the more crucial places for our purpose this morning would be Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen to that verse. What are you doing in that verse? You're, you're not transforming. You're being transformed. It's the same word that's used here. Although there it's be transformed. Here it's repent. It's the same metanoia. And Paul is referring to our transformation there in Romans. But what's amazing is that it's put in the passive form. We see that clearly in the way it's used in a text like Romans 12 too. We are being transformed. Something is happening to us. We aren't doing something. Now the issue in repentance is what would it mean to be transformed rather than being told to transform myself. Now, I know this is a little heady, and, and but just stay with me if you can, okay? What would it mean if I thought of repentance as being transformed rather than something I had to do to transform myself? Now, biblically speaking, we're in the position to understand what John the Baptist, what Jesus means when they say, Repent. We often think of John the Baptist as someone trying to get the Jews to make a change from the way they were to being these sinful people that were idolaters into something else and then they'll be ready for the coming of Jesus. But the fact that metanoia is used as a passive word in the passive form, it means God is repenting them. He was transforming the Jews by coming to them. That's what John is saying through the prophetic voice of John the Baptist. And those who believed were saved. So what exactly is it that is coming from the outside to accomplish transformation in us? What is it that transforms us, beloved? When he says metanoia, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or has come near, which by the way, puts it in the past tense. It's already happened. You don't have to wait for it to ma- or make it come. It's already here. That's very important. John the Baptist, the one proclaiming this word, is the one that was prophesied of in Isaiah 40. And that text is crucial to what we're reading here this morning in this text. Isaiah 40 is the key text in the book of Isaiah where the gospel, good news, just breaks out of nowhere in full force. There's a hard turn in Isaiah 40 from the very harsh preaching of the law to the beautiful voice of comfort in the gospel that says to them, your warfare has ended. It's over. That is why the voice is crying in the wilderness. That's how we read Isaiah. That's the way it's worded. God has ended the war. So when we hear, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, prepare the way of the Lord, it has to be understood in relationship not just to the law, but to the gospel, because the proclamation of it means that the warfare is over, it has ended, the king is coming, comfort my people, says the Lord. If if all I wanted to do was bring a message of law telling you to prepare to do something, what would I be saying? Repent would have to mean I have to make some kind of change by means of my own power. That's how we hear it. Okay, so I have to do something. My own will has to make this decision. It has to decide to, go, to decide to go in this direction over the other. Have you ever heard repentance defined like that? It's you're walking this way, and when you repent, it means you're walking this way. So what is repentance in our minds? It's, it's turning. It's, it's doing something. I was doing this. Now I'm doing this. 
If I, if I don't do this, I've not repented. So it doesn't matter what you say. Repentance is pure law. I have to do it. I have to turn from this to that or I'm not repentant. So forget believing that sins are forgiven by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sins are only forgiven if you actually change. I think that's what we might naturally think in our heads much of the time. That is not what God is talking about. That is not why he sent John the Baptist or why John the Baptist is the preparer that was prophesied. The whole Advent season, I think, at Christmas, we might think we are the preparers. And so my job as a preacher is to tell you to get yourself together because Jesus is coming, right? How exactly are we to do that? Well, you, you, you tell people, look, you, you don't have much time. He's coming. You really need to get yourself together. Do you know what that does to the story of Christmas in our minds? The good news of the coming of Christ to forgive sins. It starts to make Christmas sound and salvation sound exactly like the way we talk to our kids about Santa Claus. If, if you do that, right? It's the same thing. What do we tell you? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. You don't want a lump of coal, do you? In your stocking. You don't want to not get presents, do you? you you've been in Walmart. You've heard a parent screaming at their kid between Thanksgiving and Christmas. If you don't shut up, there's no Christmas presents. You know, you, you've heard something along those lines. I've, I've never said that to my kids in Walmart. <laughs> But it, it, the whole gospel starts to sound like elf on the shelf theology. It's your home. It's your decision. Please don't. But like, I, I really hate the elf on the shelf. I would beat that little thing with a rubber hose if I had one. It, it's, it's a, it's a, but the whole idea is, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. How omniscient and omnipresent is Santa Claus? Well, beloved, maybe we're projecting here. Because if you're not good, you don't get a present. And that, that's how we look at God. And, and we can talk about grace, but if what we really believe is, if you're not good, you don't get this. And beloved, we're, we're missing the gift. We're missing this child, this, this Jesus coming to us in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And what did she do? How did Mary prepare herself? She received she believed the word of the Lord. May it be to me as you have said. I can't do it. But you can by the Holy Spirit. Beloved, it's all a prototype. It's all a prototype. Thinking, it, 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 we don't want to misunderstand the arrival of Jesus Christ and what metanoia really is. What it means to be changed by the word of God and the gospel. To be transformed. To receive rather than to Give. Matthew is telling us that John the Baptist has arrived with the gospel from Isaiah 40. That's what we're reading. The coming calls, the coming of Jesus in Isaiah that John is proclaiming calls for a word of comfort in the gospel, not the word of warning here. And, and notice what Matthew, notice how odd 
verse 4 is, for example. Why do we care what the man is wearing or eats? Which was really weird. Right? How is, why is that in the Bible? So that there's no mistake who this man is and what his message is. We don't immediately find him telling the people, get righteous. Verse 4, Matthew tells us, the who wore camel's hair for clothes and ate locusts and wild honey. That's Elijah. Malachi 4. He's like Elijah, right? He'll be just like Elijah. He'll also be just like Isaiah in Isaiah 40, where again, Isaiah goes into gospel mode. The messenger, John the Baptist, is being described this way so that we know, so that they knew the time has been fulfilled. Comfort my people, I'm coming to forgive your sins. Then in verse 6, the people are baptized by John, confessing their sins. And again, it's all put entirely in the passive voice. To say that they were baptized by him is the same thing as saying they were changed by him. They were metanoid by John the Baptist. The old man, what, what is happening, goes into the water and dies. And the new man is raised up. Only God can accomplish this through the gospel, by grace, through faith in him. He does it here in Matthew 3 by baptism and the confession of sins. Baptism doesn't. It's not signifying us. It doesn't signify that we finally made ourselves worthy to receive forgiveness. It means that we are being all the time and have been forgiven of our sins. We see that very uniquely pictured here in the ministry of John the Baptist, that when they were baptized, they confessed their sins. They just came pouring out of these people like, like a good fruit comes from a good tree. Meaning specifically, how do you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, what is repentance? Good fruit is the true confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Coming out of the lips of confessing sinners. Something happened to them in and through the preaching word of John the Baptist. And they were baptized. But then look at what happens. Because this is very, this is interesting. Look at verse 7 now. Because it's all good. And then all of a sudden... When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Very interestingly, we're back, if you noticed it, at the issue of what repentance is. And John the Baptist just goes off on the Pharisees and Sadducees here. He's been baptizing everybody that comes to him, and out comes their confession of sins, but then he starts to notice, oh shoot, there are Pharisees and Sadducees here. And they're the wrong kind of people to receive forgiveness and repentance. What, what am I supposed to do about them? He was called by God. The Holy Spirit fell on him as he did on Elijah. He's been told exactly what to say and what to do. But if the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming, he realizes, okay, this is a dangerous message. Because if I keep giving the message like this, the sins of the Pharisees and Sadducees are going to be forgiven. And they're horrible people. They're self-righteous people. They're a brood of vipers in verse 7. They're liars and hypocrites. They're they're nothing other than the original liar himself. They, They do the same sort of thing. 
They aren't really coming for the forgiveness of sins. Right? They're not going to follow Jesus. They're not going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance or follow the Messiah at this point, I should say. They aren't really coming for the forgiveness of sins. They're coming because they're self-righteous. They already think that their works have made them righteous. So John starts to basically give a sermon to them, the kind we'd like to give everybody that we don't like. Just a scathing one. He doesn't want to baptize them. That's what he says. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It wasn't me. That's what John is saying. I didn't invite you guys here. Don't, I don't want to baptize you. Because if he starts giving this to sinners who really don't deserve it, right? None of them should receive God's mercy. None of them should be repented by God, especially in this baptism that forgives sins, apparently, in verse 11. Because, again, if he starts giving it to people who don't deserve it, when technically the law has not yet been fulfilled by the Messiah, and they go prancing around like they've done it, it's going to be for nothing. So John just scathes them. He tells them the prophesied axe is at the root of the trees to cut people like them down. And oh, how he wishes he could just be the one chopping. But he still baptizes them. He's just confused about it. That's what he's saying in verse 11. Either I'm baptizing you for repentance, even though I don't like it. Or he will baptize you. And trust me, you guys don't want his baptism. John is basically saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm commissioned to do this. But the Christ is going to come after this. And he's going to baptize you, not with water like I do but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he tells him exactly what he thinks that will look like in verse 12, right? His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, like you guys, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus will come, the Messiah will come with greater power than John to thresh the floor of his barn. That's why he's coming. And when he does, he'll gather up the wheat, which of course is going to be a very small amount compared to the rest. And then he's going to burn the chaff like these hypocritical religious leaders. It sounds like John can't wait for that day. He's very anticipatory about it. Like we often want the wicked and unbelieving to get punished so that they will see that they were so wrong. There is a part of us that wants that. But the most shocked person of all at the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus... If we read on this morning to what happens next, will be none other than John the Baptist himself. The very next thing that happens in Matthew. Again, these things aren't just thrown together piecemeal. These four gospel writers wrote very intentionally as they were led by the Holy Spirit. The very next thing that happens in Matthew after John has baptized these terrible Pharisees and Sadducees. According to verse 11, forgiving their sins, warning them the Messiah is coming to burn them like chaff. The very next thing that happens is that the Messiah, Jesus, we know, actually shows up. And you know what he shows up for? To be baptized. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, to be metanoid by him. Why is that a shocker. We, we need to read it as a shocker. Because he doesn't have a winnowing fork in his hand. He's not destroying anybody for being fake. He, 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 that's not what he does. In fact, it's worse than that. 
not only is he not burning the Pharisees and Sadducees up, he's actually asking to be baptized by John, like all these other sinners like you and me, including the Pharisees and Sadducees. Imagine you're John the Baptist. You have been prepared for this your entire life. When Mary, pregnant Mary, walked into your mother's house, you leapt in your womb for joy by the Holy Spirit because you knew that was the Messiah. Why would He ever baptize Jesus with a baptism that's for the forgiveness of sins? And you see how confusing it is. What does the sinless Savior, in John's mind, what does the Messiah need baptized for? Jesus was very confusing to John the Baptist. He really was. And that's, I'm not insulting John the Baptist. I'm, I'm trying to make a point. John didn't know how to take him. He knew what he was supposed to say. He knew what he was supposed to do. Apparently, you can tell by the way he responds in the Gospels, he does not understand why in the world Jesus would need baptizing. He's preparing for the one to come who is the Messiah, the one who saves. Now that the Messiah and the one who saves is here, why is he being baptized? He's not one of us, or is he? Here comes the Savior, and the first thing he says to John is, Metanoia, me, prepare me. John doesn't understand this because what he thought was going to happen with the coming one, we already read in verses 11 and 12. But Jesus says, no, 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 you have to do this. And then he basically tells him he's going to do it in verse 15. John the Baptist remained fairly confused about Jesus, whether he was indeed the one sent from God. We see that just before his own death. But again, no one born of women up to that point in time was greater than John the Baptist. He wasn't a pagan or unbelieving or something. He didn't understand. And we wouldn't have either by any means. But make no mistake, Jesus doing this means that He is in a sense receiving the baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Well, what sins? Not His. Not His. So why is He doing this? Beloved, Jesus is the prototype for our redemption. When He says to fulfill all righteousness, it doesn't mean that, well, the command to be baptized is a law, and so in order to be uh, the sufficient Redeemer for us, He has to do that too. So He's just checking off the box. Well, I also am going to have to be baptized by John. John would have understood that. That would make very natural logic sense. That's not what's happening. He's fulfilling all righteousness by becoming for us, by doing for us everything we need to happen to us in order to be saved. He is a true human being while being fully God in every sense of the word. Human beings need to be forgiven of their sins. The difference with Jesus is that He had no sin but ours. He is preparing to save us. He is preparing Himself to be our righteousness. He is showing us how God is going to accomplish our pardon. John was learning what he might not have understood before this moment. When the coming one actually arrives, what he's immediately going to do is forgive sin by taking sin on himself. Thus, he is baptized. 
True repentance, beloved. True preparation for the coming of the Lord is not, okay, clean yourself up and change so that you're ready when He gets here and He will accept you. Ironically, that's precisely what makes the gospel so offensive to people. God is not interested in what we can do to prove ourselves. And we really want to earn it. But beloved, if it's a matter of feeling the way you're supposed to feel about your sin, who among us knows exactly how sorry we should feel about our specific sins? Who knows what amount of crying and feeling bad atones for fornication or drunkenness or lying or disobeying our parents? How, how much repentance, if I understand it that way, does that sin take? How many times do you have to say it? And if that's what we think, don't get mad at the Catholics, right? Because they're just going to say, say four Hail Marys and two Our Fathers, pray the rosary, and you're forgiven for stealing the cookie from the cookie jar. Right? So without realizing it now, I think we might let that thinking creep into our heads. I can't just go and repent. I can't just ask God to forgive me. My sin was too big. Then what are you going to do? Again, we're not talking about how certain sins have certain consequences that go along with them. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking spiritually before God. Why would we presume to know, now I'm really sorry. Now I know that I'm forgiven. How do you know that? Not because Jesus died. I don't look to the cross. I look to me. Well, I was sorry. I cried for like four days. Is the, there's an eternal hell for sin. Do we think being sad about what we did for four days is going to atone? We don't need just Jesus dying for us to do that. If it doesn't require Jesus, if a sermon doesn't require the crucified Christ, it isn't a Christian sermon. Did Jesus have to die for this sermon to be true? That's the question we need to ask. Who among us comprehends what rebellion against the holy God actually is that we need to be forgiven for? How self-righteous can we be? Like, if, if we could see what our sins actually require as it pertains to justice, we would disintegrate, beloved. We, we, we don't know. We have no idea. It doesn't mean don't be sad when you sin. It doesn't mean don't be sorry. It doesn't mean don't ask for forgiveness. No, no, no. I'm asking if you're relying on what we can comprehend about what being forgiven of this requires, we're smarter than God. We're presuming that we don't need the cross. Who knows how sorry we need to be for our sins? One way to find out is ask the person that you offended. Ask them, how long do I need to be miserable about what I did to you? Right? I mean, that's one way. But I mean, it's still not... Because sin isn't ultimately horizontal. It's vertical. David did whatever he did to Bathsheba in sleeping with her. And then he had her husband killed. And David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Wait a minute, you didn't sin against... He did, but David realizes this all happened in front of you. That's the priority. I, I could make this right my way, but I, I've sinned against you. Right? 
other people can forgive us according to what they understand about what we've done. Right? But we're talking about God here. We're not talking about just your simple everyday give and take of I wronged you. How do I make it right? Beloved, we can't make it right with God. That's why Jesus is here. So you don't get at the beginning of the ministry a big proclamation of, listen, you're going to have to do something for me to forgive you. No, what we're being told is, listen, I'm coming to do all of it, and you better just receive it. I'm coming to do all of it. Just receive it and believe on me. Clothe yourself in me. We are not in a position to bargain this morning with God. We we don't have what we need so that we could actually say no thank you to what God has provided in Christ and then give something from ourselves that God will accept. No, no, we must simply receive what Jesus has done for us in faith. That's it. We are passive here, beloved. We're recipients, beneficiaries, not benefactors. We're not producers. Only believe. Why does God not count faith as the one work I can do? Why is faith a gift? Because we don't have that either. So if you say, well, how how do I know if I receive the gift? Don't think of it in terms like that. If when you hear the gospel, you want to be made right with God, then ask. And it is yours. Look back up to verse 9 for just a minute here. John is preaching the gospel there. That's how it works. If the Pharisees and Sadducees would say, no, 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 John, we have Abraham as our father. We're already in the people of God. John would remind them, you guys don't get how that happened, do you? God is able to raise up rocks to be his children because you're rocks. That's what he does. God raises up things that can't do anything for themselves to be his people. So if you're the children of Abraham, it's because God did that to you. He raised you up like a rock for his praise. The saving word of God is so powerful that rocks would believe if God raised them up. God makes us ready to receive Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. We do not make ourselves ready. That's why people that are uh, stuck in patterns of sin go away from the church rather than come to the church because they don't think they'll hear the gospel and many of them don't think they deserve to. I just had a conversation with a young man two weeks ago in my car. I took him somewhere he needed to go. The church provided some help for him. I thought it was right to do. And he told me on the way, he's like, I've been clean for about six months. I I got out of jail. Uh, I just I'm hoping to get myself together so that I can come back to church and so that God will accept me again because I've been very angry at him. My My pregnant girlfriend in high school died in a car crash and my baby was in her tummy and she died too. And so I've been very angry at God, but I feel like if I get things together and quit using that God will take me back. That's the natural way to think. The difference between us and that guy is that he got caught. He needs to hear the gospel. Like I couldn't believe it. I just looked over at him, and I, I, I really don't say things like this. I really don't. And I said, you got in the right car today. Because I want to tell you something. That's not the way it works. And any one of you would have said the same thing. That's not what I mean. I, I'm simply saying I was so happy to tell him the gospel. I don't know if he's going to believe it, but I know his name, and I know his phone number, and I know his address. And I hope, I hope 
we see him up here. I hope with all, and I pray with all my heart, but beloved, there are weary Christians that believe exactly what that young man does. And I, I prepare the way. Receive this. It is yours. Believe it. Partition in the, participation in the people that God saves is not a matter of what God does. Uh, it is a matter of what God does to us, not a matter of what we do for Him. God raises up rocks. Rocks don't do anything. Perhaps for John the Baptist, not all the connections were being made yet, but they would be. They are now, most certainly. What a man he was. But what is the good fruit that trees must bear? What is the fruit this morning that is in keeping with being changed by God? Beloved, receive Jesus when you hear the gospel. That's the fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not anything we can think of that proves we're sorry enough. It's believing the gospel. Repentant people believe the gospel. People that are changed by the word believe the gospel. What is being said here? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right. Stop working. Stop trying. Stop trying to change and transform and turn yourself into something that is worthy of God's favor. God is speaking comfort to you this morning. Stop. Lay down your works. Lay down your arms. Confess your sins and be forgiven and come home. And be redeemed and be saved and rest because it's finished. He was even baptized for you. God does the work of salvation. We don't. Faith is not a work or a fruit that we produce. It's a gift. We're passive. It comes to us from God as a gift of His grace. And it changes us, but not a little bit. And we're almost done. That's not what grace does. Grace doesn't put us in a position now to do the work God requires of us. And then He will save us. That's a very popular teaching nowadays. No, the word that makes alive is the word that saves and makes us completely new. Remember what it means, what the Bible says it means to be baptized into Christ in Romans 6, right? It is to be baptized into his death and raised with him to newness of life. That's what it means to be repented by God. When we're confessing our sins, that's the fruit of faith, beloved. Belief in Christ, the gift given. And God does it all through the gospel and the word of promise. Yes, Jesus burns away the chaff. He burns us all the way away until there's nothing of us left. That's what the winnowing fork is doing. No sin left to condemn us. No righteousness left to merit for us. No, he says, you have died. The performing you and the sinning you is dead. The new you lives in this sinning body, but it's dead. We've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me that is doing the work. Galatians 2.20 So God creates the wheat from the ground up and gives new life. We don't bring Him wheat. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing right now, that you're hiding, baby. 
receive the gift. He was given for you. Yes, for that sin too, just in case you're wondering. You may think you don't deserve it, or maybe you're thinking of people that you don't want to get it. But forgiveness is achieved by the power of the Word itself. The power that Christ has, the greatest power. The power of a promise, which is even greater than the power of the law to make us righteous before God. We are made ready for His coming with the gospel. Receive it now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let what He has done wash over you, not just to kill the old you, but to raise to life the new you in Him.